Well, it is good morning. Uh, despite five hours of sleep and probably 50 boxes of paper in our, in our living room and downstairs, but I want to say, first of all, thank you to all of you who were so gracious to take time out to help uh, load, drive across town, unload, stuff cupboards, pull weeds, uproot overgrown trees, um, paint, and a, mu- a myriad of other things, uh, and be creative in removing a window properly, and uh, kind of like a baby light, putting it through a window to get it, our beloved refrigerator into our home without having food or meals outside with that, but it all worked out well. And um, it was interesting because we had drive in front of our house, and we had several pickup trucks with trailers, and uh, one of my neighbors came over to ask, introduce themselves, and kind of looked like, who are you? There's this contingency of people that are blocking our streets and helping you move. And they came back later after things had settled to introduce themselves and bring some cookies and, and such. And so we're, we're delighted that this is our, our, we have a house, but you are a home because people make a home. Uh, it's not just a structure. And so we are going to be part of your family, get to know you, and we're delighted to be part of this community. I also want to say thanks to our dear friends who are next-door neighbors at Everett. They came, found an excuse to come and visit us on our first weekend here. They watched our kids, and we love them dearly. And so I want to say thank you to Heartways for coming um, this weekend. We'll continue on this series called Story. I love this, this uh, display here. I've heard the privilege of several pastors sharing their stories online of their char- characters and their testimony, and uh, I will be doing that as well. I remember last um, December, I don't know how many of you had a chance to see the musical movie Les Miserables. Any show of hands? Yeah, a number of you. Um, with Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe, the main characters, uh, portraying Jovert and Jean Van Jean, a, a guy who was... Um, been in prison for stealing some bread for 19 years and is, is released, and he has to struggle with how to deal with grace and mercy. Uh, he's got a reputation, but um, this guy has it out for him. But if you, you saw the, the movie, there's one scene in particular that many people think stand out, and it's a story, this part where Fontaine sings the song, I Have a Dream. Can you remember that? And it was sung by Anne Hathaway. And she wasn't even one of the main characters. She was a supporting character. And as a result of her portrayal, which really made the story really strong, she won an, uh, a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor, Supporting Actress and also an Oscar. Neither of the main actresses did, which is interesting because her role was so con- important. It actually helped to make the movie great. And today I want, I want to read a story of a, by, a man named Barnabas in the book of Acts. And he, like Anne Hathaway, is in a great supporting role. And there's, some, there's four principles from his life that I want to review and kind of share a little bit of my story of things I've gleaned from him that I've grown to appreciate. If you have your, your Bibles, we're going to read uh, in Acts 4, 32 through 37. It says this. Beginning of the early church, it says, All the believers, the Christians, were in one heart, one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who had owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, 
sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we're introduced to this man. His family background, he's from Cyprus, which is off the coast of what would have been current modern-day Israel. He was a Jew, which means he would have grown up in the, in the Pharisaical, uh, in uh, teaching in the temple of learning Hebrew and the law. And so he was quite familiar, probably a family of faith to some degree. Also, also a family of wealth. Obviously, he was owning land. And so you see this immigrant who I migrated, had means, and he believed in the mission of the church enough to give. Now, my family, uh, my grandparents came from Russia and Ukraine in the 30s. They immigrated to South America, to Argentina and Uruguay. And uh, my parents in the 60s immigrated separately to Los Angeles where they met and married and where I was born. And I have two younger sisters, Susie and Debbie. And when I grew up, my, um, my dad was always, he was a machinist for United Airlines working on the turbine engines. And everyone in his shop also, there were a lot of other immigrants. And so he would talk about his friends, but he would lead by calling them the country they were from. Like you'd say, like my Czechoslovakian friend Frank, or my German friend Hans. Uh, I didn't know Hans, I know the, the German friend Hans. And so an immigrant would look at the world through the lens of culture. And I began to use that as well. I used to tell all oh, my, my Filipino friend Scott. Now, Scott had been, lived here for four generations with his family, but was not very Filipino anymore. <laughs> but I needed to grab one label to label Scott as something ethnic because I was culturally different. Or you might have been, your parents may have come on the Mayflower, but we would call you the English friend. <laughs> and so that was how we looked alive. And later, as I grew older, my friends didn't like those labels of being labeled something other than American. But that was the, the vantage point of how I looked at my life. And I grew in a loving home a home where my, my parents believed in God and we read the Bible and prayed. But at a young age, I understood the gospel, but I didn't understand God's grace as we sang this morning, how he loves me. Because I felt that I, I accepted Christ and I said, God, my life belongs to you. I learned that from my parents. But I felt that every time I sinned or disobeyed my parents or broke God's law, that he would leave because he couldn't live in a heart that was dark. I was five, seven years old and so I didn't understand those, those concepts and so every week I would go to church and say, God, please don't come back yet. I need to ask you to come into my life again. I, I disobeyed my parents and I fought or I lied and, and, and I don't want you to come back and I don't want to go to hell. And no one knew about this fear ahead. I was tormented week after week and no one knew. And I was a good, pretty good kid. My sister wouldn't have said that, but my parents would have. <laughs> and I remember it was, I was 10 years old and... and San Jose, California on, in July of 1980, where there was a, a service like this where a guy was speaking about um, heaven and hell and having a relationship with God. And it was a good message, but that fear just trembled. And I'm like, oh, God, please, don't come back before the end of the service. I don't want to die and go to hell. And I believed that that's it's true. And I came forward at the end of the service, and I knelt down, and I cried, and said, God, forgive me again this week. I've blown it, and I want you to come back into my life. And this this... I think it was an older lady came up and laid her hands. I never only remember her face. And she prayed. She said, God, may you help this boy understand that you love him and you'll never leave him. And she prayed and she looked at me and she said, son, you'll never have to do this again. He's in your heart for good. And I wept. She had no idea what I had been suffering for, for several years. I was feeling that God would abandon me because I was broken. God gave her some divine knowledge or an insight that she could have never known. And it healed me. I said, God, you love me that much that you would tell a stranger about what I was suffering. I said, God, I'll give you my life. 
I'll live for you now. You've, that missing piece that I didn't understand is now in place. And I thought, oh, I'm free. And at 12 years old, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, got my prayer language, and I began to read the Bible, and it became more than stories to me. God was actually speaking to me, and that has launched me in a life of, of discovering Jesus and doing my best to be a follower. And I believe Barnabas had a similar path, maybe not those details, but a, a strong family of faith where he said, I'm gonna, I know something about God. But beyond that, he was, the first point is, he, Barnabas invested sacrificially in God's big story. He saw the mission of the church and said, if this church, this group of people, if they're selling stuff and giving it to the, the leaders of the church so they can take care of the poor, I'm in. Honey, go sell the property. And said so the sales, it wasn't a portion, a token gift. He didn't give it with any strings attached and said, I want to be on the board and help decide where this money goes. Lay at the feet. We believe in this mission. So this, he had this heritage of faith, but he saw the mission of the church say, we're going to help people. We can do something about this. He gave what he had. And there's, there's several people, landowners and houses. People just didn't hold on to stuff. Like, if you need it, we'll give it. And it reminds me of my, my parents who were these immigrants. My dad was the only breadwinner. My mom worked part-time sometimes. But my parents walked this kind of generosity because they were immigrants and they knew what it was like to have need. My parents would give us, send us in the streets of San Francisco with other ministries to, to reach the poor and the needy, to give what they could. But they did a lot with hospitality. And I remember my, my parents, my dad particularly, he learned of a group of people in our community through friends, 12 Slavic men who were immigrating to the United States, who had no place to stay, and they were on the, kind of the beachhead hoping to prepare things with visas to secure the family's arrival later. And so he spent a few weeks going to every thrift store, Salvation, trying to find beds and mattresses and furniture to supply these two apartments for these men that he never met before. And then he invited them over to Thanksgiving. And I was bummed, because I wanted to be our Thanksgiving where we get to thank God for our needs being met. And ironically, my dad was caring for these, these men. Of those 12, I think one or two a year later, came and thanked him and brought their families. My dad was like, it doesn't matter. I'm doing it because I want to be generous because someone helped me. And Barnabas was this way. Barnabas probably had a lot more than my parents, modest upbringing, but they gave what they had. They didn't wish they had more to give. They gave what they had. And I love that about Barnabas. He's like, wow, I wish I could give two houses worth. No, honey, we can give this. It's going to go to help people in our community. I believe in what the church is doing. So that's the first aspect that I like about Barnabas and his story. He invests sacrificially in God's big story. It was not a casual gift. Second of all, in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, we'll read there as well. background is there's a man named Saul, whom you heard about this summer in the story, who was a, a Jew as well, but he hated these Christians, and he thought it was some kind of sect or cult that had to be put out. And so he, he gave all his efforts to squashing this, this cultic sect group. He thought they were radical, and we're going to put them down. And he went to even legal means where he got letters uh, written by officials that he could imprison and harass people who claimed to be Christians. It's kind of persecution. And while persecuting 
uh, Christians, Jesus appeared to him in a miraculous situation where he's blinded and Jesus speaks to him in a way that he hears. He says, stop persecuting me. And he responds, okay, I'm done. And he begins to turn his heart to Christ and begin to, to preach to people he had just been persecuting. It was, it was an instantaneous conversion. And this is what happens. We read here in verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. You would be too if he was addressing your cousin and harassing people, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So this guy was a radical terrorist of the day to Christians, has his encounter with God, and then instantly switches teams. He says, I'm for you. Now, all these Christians that were weakened in the minority were fearful of this guy because he's a reputation that spread across the area. But Barnabas did something different. We learn about Barnabas that he could see potential stories in other people. He saw Paul, because I want to find out what the story is about this. I've heard people are afraid. So he goes to Paul. How many of you when, are like me sometimes when, you, when something bothers you, you kind of make up a story without going to the source or asking people what they think or what they really said? People are like, oh, I've heard about Paul. Barnabas says, I'm going to go talk to him. This is true? I might be, if it's not true, I might go to prison. If it's true, I might hear the story. And he goes and interviews him, and he's convinced that God's at work in this man's life who had been a terrorist. Then he says, Paul, come with me. I'll walk you through. Guys, Paul's with us. He's now a follower of Jesus. He leveraged his influence and his leadership, his reputation to say, come with me. I will validate you to these people. Now, you and I both know that there are people that claim to be Christians and you're like, I don't know. The way you act... (laughs) Uh, why don't you come back? Which leaves me in a position of what? Being the judge, which God never asked me to be. I don't get to determine whether someone's heart is right or not. I can see the fruit of it, and there's people who struggle with questions and things that they're trying to figure out, but they're struggling forward. And Barnabas says, he's in. I know what he did yesterday, and you may remember that, but he's new today. And I had a chance to talk with a few people yesterday that were at our host, and, and if you look at it and talk to them, you'd like hear their stories, and you'll thought, I would never have seen you as so broken. I would never have seen you in the way that you describe how your life was like before you met Christ. That's an incredible work, like, oh, if you only knew. There's several handful, a handful of people I talked to, and, and you see, that if we judge on the outside, we would miss the whole story. But Barnabas looked deeper, found a diamond in the rough. Was Paul still arrogant and bold? Absolutely. But his heart was different. He was willing to take a risk because he's not worried about himself. And he championed God, Paul, versus others. It's interesting in uh, junior high school, my, my high school youth pastor, a great man named Jerry, um, he went on a missionary journey for six months to Asia, wanted to stay and live, give his life, but circumstances which moved where he didn't do that, so he came back home. And he was quite disappointed. He wanted to live a life adventure out in Mongolia and China. 
So he said, fine, if I can't do it there, I'll do it here. So he would teach us everything he knew about his experiences of being a missionary, and then he would take us with his wife and some other leaders out to the streets of San Francisco on Friday nights, teenagers, and he would preach and share a message. His wife would lead songs, and, and we would sit on, on the corner handing, handing out gospel literature tracts, begging and pleading, nobody asks us a question. <laughs> we had no idea what we are talking about. But we loved God and wanted to be there for people. We'd have people come to us and, and tell us of their vices and their, their sexual addictions and stuff, and we're just church kids wanting to tell people God loved them. And we like, please take this and read it. <laughs> just go read it at home. <laughs> And periodically, we'd get one person come up like, what do you hear? What's the deal? So Friday night, you could be somewhere else. And we learned how to share our faith. And most of the times, I, I don't think we were very good, but people knew they loved us. God loved us. And I would tell my, my, my youth pastor's stories of his trips to Mongolia. And uh, he said, Rick, you tell those stories so poorly. <laughs> They're not even your stories. Because <laughs> I had none. He says, Rick, it's time that there be a gospel according to Rick. And that you begin to let me encourage you to do something to serve God in a way that your life will have purpose and meaning on its own. You have your own stories. God wants to do something. And so he encouraged me to go on a mission trip. I went to uh, Europe and it changed my life. And then in college, I went on a couple trips. And then I got a job out of college working for a ministry called Team Lowry's that sent summer teams overseas. And uh, when I got the call, I didn't know that the director was serious. I thought it was a, a practical joke. I know who I am. I can barely talk to people on the streets, and you're asking me to join a team of leaders? I talked to my youth pastor. He said, Rick, I've been praying for something like this for your life. I saw in you when you were 15. You're, you're meant to do this, and you'll be a blessing. And he, he was a Barnabas in my life where he's, I see it. Go do it. You won't be perfect, but you're the best fit right now. And for those six years, we saw... Multiple people come through, 1,000, 1,500 students and kids get trained up to go serve in mission trips. And some came for selfish reasons that got changed. Some, a handful of people are serving as missionaries today. And we get the, the rough around the edges. And the challenging ones were the pastor's kids. <laughs> we thought they knew it all. And they had a chip on their shoulder. And sometimes God would correct them, and they'd walk away humbled. Barnabas could see potential people in others, potential God stories in others. He gave sacrificially. He saw God stories in others. And third, let's read in Acts eleven twenty one. Twenty one. It says, "The Lord's hand was with them." And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When we arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with his church and taught great numbers of people. Disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. See, Barnabas made other people's story great. He went and saw this work of God where he had heard news of people responding to this faith message to believe in Jesus. And the news, the work was so great because I can't do this. There had been a nine-year gap between when he had encountered Paul 
to now. He says he went to the city of Tarsus where Paul's located. He said, Paul, get off the bench. I need you. He went and found him and he trained him how to be a pastor and to, to disciple others. And they went for a year and Paul became the better leader. Paul became a more prolific writer. Paul was a greater catalyst with his personality being this type A driver. And Barnabas was happy to pull this guy off the bench, train him up, and then watch him pass him by say, you're a better leader than I am. Because I believe in you, I see it, and I need your help. And they were there for a year before they moved on. I like that about Barnabas, that he made other people certain. He invited him to come, and he cheered his success and watched the church grow. He loved seeing people come to faith. And he was kind of a late leader, pastor, teacher. Barnabas was obviously a businessman who knew what was going on. In that season of TWO, working for this mission ministry in the springtime, we would, different staff members would travel to different parts of the world to visit these host mission aging sites. I, because I spoke Spanish, would take Latin America and South America and then also do Asia. And I love these journeys. I love to travel. And so I remember being, going to Peru and visiting this missionary named Pastor Robert, who was a surfer dude out of Bible college who went to Peru on a mission trip, changed his heart, and loved to surf and go to, to a nation um, where there's no surfing. And he feels called, starts a ministry that grows even under the Shining Path Guerrilla Terrorist Movement during the 80s and 90s. And when the missionaries came back, they began to grow their churches, but his was so far ahead because he didn't leave. And I heard his work of inner city and country and poor and youth, and I thought to myself, I want to work here. I feel called. So I called my boss, and I was like, um... When I come back, I'm going to make plans to join this ministry because it's so great. He says, okay, just finish off the rest of the year, the cycle, and you make your arrangements to go. And I'm like, sweet, this is so cool. I'd love to be a part of this work. Several months later, I end up going to Hong Kong and go to the city, like 8 million people. There's like 100,000 people and three huge towers. I go, well, Peru's great, but this is more people. So I'm like, no, it's going to be Hong Kong. So I say, okay, Hong Kong. That happened two or three more times, and my, finally my boss said, Rick, shut up and come home. <laughs> You're obviously seeing God's heart for all these places in the world, and you can't go to all of them. But in the position you're in, you can send high school students and leaders to these countries, and we can work together to train them so they can go. And you're in an unenviable position that you get to see it, but not be on the ground every day. I'm like, well, it's still kind of cool to see it. And we see these hundreds of youth, and I was changed by that as well. But that wasn't enough for me because I still wanted to be a part of something significant. And so I talked to one of my missionary friends who uh, worked in China, and he invited me to take a team to do a prayer walking, to pray in areas where there were no churches, that, but they wanted to plant churches. So we'd go and pray in, I mean, high altitude in, in Lhasa at 12,000, 13,000 feet in these monasteries, and just cool stuff happened for another time I'll share. But I said, I'm, I'm ready to do something. I, I want to do more for God. And he says, Ask God for the toughest assignment possible. So in Romans, it says that Paul said, I made my aim to preach the gospel where it had never been preached. He says, go to Tibet. Spend your whole life. To learn a language and culture, it's hard. You have some cultural anthropology you can try to figure out. No, there'll be no other missionaries there. You can preach whatever you want, and no one will, will debate you. So I said, okay, I'll do that. For the next couple of years, as I would talk about the ministry of the, that we did with the youth, I talk about Tibet and the need for missionaries and prayer support, finances, and I was kind of preparing to go. To, after three trips, 
the doors didn't open and I didn't go. And I was quite frustrated. I spent so much energy. You know what happened? God called my assistant and her husband. She heard about it so much. She started praying about it. And she went. My wife and I supported them for 10 years. They're better missionaries than I ever could have been. But their background in engineering, they're working with underground churches. And I said, Lord, okay, I guess I'll be like Barnabas. Try to put people together. I want to see what God's doing and be a part of it. And maybe bring people together and do my little part and, and find the diamonds in the rough like someone did with me. Because I want my life to be spent on encouraging people who are far from God to come close. Barnabas was all about that. He'll do whatever it takes. He didn't judge people in the process. But there are challenges that come along the way. And let's turn to Acts 15. Then there's relationships that go south. Has anyone have a relationship that goes south where you work with somebody in business or a family and everything's going well and the differences come out? We'll read then 1536. It says, Sometimes later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns that were preached, where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So they visit Antioch and they went to all these brothers and they let's go back and visit everybody. Barnabas wanted to take this guy named John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him. Why? Because this young leader had deserted them in Pamphylia and, not had, continued, and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria, so this is strengthening searches. Sir, that is the idea to go back, and Barnabas says, I got this young leader, probably a little flaky. Let's, let's bring him along. And Paul says, that guy deserted us. No way. It's either him or me. You want him, you go. I'll find someone else to join me. And you can imagine Barnabas thinking back, I was the one who saw you when you were an enemy. I put my arms around you and I brought you along and introduced you to people who become your family. When the work was great, I went and found you and brought you to Antioch because God needed you to help this church. And now you're going to leave me because of a flaky leader? I'm sure his heart was crushed. And they both went separate ways. And what I love about Barnes is Barnes didn't see this relational challenge as the end of his story. Most people are like, fine, I won't do this anymore. I'm, I'm burnt, I'm broken, I'm frustrated with people. I can't do this. You can't work with people. Barnes said, no, no, no. That's not the end of the story. We later learned that Barnes went with John Mark and good choice on Barnes' part, John Mark ends up writing the book of Mark, one of the Gospels, <laughs> this young leader who happens to be his cousin. Paul gets blessed and Silas, and miracles happen later when they're in jail. So God blesses both of them despite the relational rift. And later in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, and says, hey, can you send Mark over? He's helpful. He probably learned about his ability to write, his experience with Jesus. And we don't know if they, how they reconciled but Barnabas was not going to be deterred by this problem. And I learned my own lesson a few years ago when I was working in Team World Outreach. Then I worked, I took a hiatus and went into private banking in Beverly Hills for six years and then left that to start working for an inner city ministry 
that we loved, my wife and I in our churches that we partnered with were invested in these inner city block parties and got a job working there um, to help it grow and four or five months into it, it just was not a fit. And I find myself without a job and all this hope and belief for the future would happen became into a disappointment and I was bitter. And every angle I looked at, I, I saw how unfair this was. And I don't know if you ever try to blame God for something. And then you wait for him to respond. It's cold on the other end. I'm like, God, you owe me an apology. I was comfortable in this good job, making good money at the bank, and I switched to this, and now it falls apart. You, you owe me. I'm serving you, and nothing. And I realized who God was in that time because I was praying to God for answers when I think, as the song was talking, he really wanted to know me, wanted to be with me. And we as, we as parents, you need have kids that they want you for stuff. Something like, hey, could you just cuddle with me? Come sit with me. And I think God wants that with us sometimes, is for us just to be with him, get to know him, which is uncomfortable at times. And it was two years later that the bitterness of looking at this person through negative eyes and lens of my hurt and creeping onto judgment. Godly person didn't mean to, just didn't work. And two years later, I find myself, God's challenging, you need to forgive. Oh, no, I was wronged. And I, saw, I felt like God said, forgive. You're the one who's suffering. So we had a team go down to Oakland to a block party, and I was nervous. I didn't want to see the person, the leader that I knew, and uh, those feelings like you've got to do something, but just not comfortable. And finally, we reconciled, and our team loved the ministry that we even learned from them and took this ministry back to our church called City Fest. They block parties where hundreds of people were volunteering, serving our community, and hundreds getting saved. And I could have been almost detracted by letting unforgiveness detract me. But Barnabas' story is like that. He says, God's work is too great that I can't let relational challenges. We'll work them out. So you got three things. One, Barnabas is invest sacrificially. He sees the big story of people and others. He looks at them and I see something that God could do. They're open. And then he sees the big work of God. We've got to be a part of this and get everyone involved. And there's reality of there's, there's pain, relational conflict. And as Christians, we're called to be like Christ and forgive. Even those that are close to us. It's okay when your enemy does it sometimes. But with someone close, it's hard. So today, as we conclude this message, I have a few questions I want to ask and as action steps for us. Number one, Barnabas invested in God's story. What do you have right now that you can use to help share God's story? You can always say, well, I wish when I get this much money or this much time, like my parents, like Barnabas, what do you have right now in your life at your disposal that you can offer to God to serve time and your talents and treasures? Decide upon that. Number two, Barnabas saw potential God's stories in others. Can you identify someone in your circle of influence who has a great God's story to share with others? Kind of shared yesterday with people, God's grace is not done, but move them along greatly. Can you encourage them to share the story? Number three, Barnabas made other people's story great. He didn't care if they were better than him or more promoted or more well-known. He said, I'll let you. I know my, I'm comfortable with who I am. I want you to become great. What is God up to in your neighborhood? How can you join in? Are the people you can love more? Fourth, Barnabas didn't let relational conflict become the end of the story. 
Is there disappointment or an area of unforgiveness you have towards someone? Maybe you want to serve some capacity in a church or in a ministry and it didn't go well and you're like, I'm not doing that again. The answer is God needs you. There's people that need you. You need it. God, to heal their heart. Let God forgive you and may you offer forgiveness to that situation so your heart is clean and free. We're about to embark in a new season of loving more and I'm gonna learn with you how we reach Latinos. But there's a work, we're meeting people across our community, things are just popping up. And I'm really saying, God, you care about these people across. And you may be asked by God to put your arm around somebody who's an outcast, who no one would go near and God's encouraged you to bring them into the family of God so they can learn of God's love for us. You might have to walk with someone and help them forgive an area where they were hurt. Can we do that? Let's, let's bow our heads.